Welcome to the 20-Minute Bible Study, a teaching podcast from Faith on Hill Church in Milwaukee, Oregon. My name's Adam, and while I put 20 minutes on the timer, why don't you open your Bible to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 13. Well, with 20 minutes on the clock, I am going to say that um, this is not a kid-friendly subject. Uh, generally speaking, we try to keep things PG to PG-13, especially Sunday mornings, um, but it's not a kid-friendly story. We aren't, we're going to try to not be R-rated, but you know, if you got kids you're driving somewhere, this may be one to skip and listen to later. Last week, we heard the prophet Nathan tell David that there would be strife and calamity and, and dysfunction and brokenness in his home as a result of his sin. And this week we start to see the results of it. It says in the course of time, and we're not really told how long, but it, a number of years, uh, maybe, maybe a decade, maybe more, in the course of time, Ammon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Why is Tamar Absalom's sister and not Ammon's son of David? Well, they have different moms. And they may have actually grown up in different houses. You know, David had the palace, but maybe there was a house over here where, where this wife lived and a house over there where that wife lived. They may have only seen each other at like big gatherings, big family events, but then never really had much contact beyond that. It says that Ammon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. She was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now, what does that, all that mean? Well, he, okay, so he, obviously he's in love with, he's, he, he thinks himself in love with his half-sister Tamar. And, and you might say, oh, that's gross. Well, yeah, sure, but at the same time, this is part of brokenness. Like, he has no, he may have zero, like, relational connection. He may not even view her as a sister uh, that, that, you know, just the way he sees things. And he, he's, he's lusting after her. It says she's a virgin. It seemed impossible for him to do anything with her. Basically, it's, he's, he's doing the math. And he's like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm a prince. And, and I'm just going to be kind of blunt here about this. If you're, if you're the son of the king, I don't think it's unreasonable to assume that he had fooled around or he had the opportunity to. Uh, you know, a servant girl, some somebody in the, you know, lady in waiting, uh, somebody that he, he just kind of met in his travels, it would have been very possible for him to have fooled around. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's all this, uh, you know, hubbub about, um, you know how like algorithms work? And, and I have this thing where like you watch like one like DIY thing on YouTube and the next thing you know, it's all prepper stuff uh, for, <laughs> for the next couple days. And, and I'm working really hard like, okay, I watch like, you know, one thing about golf. And then the next thing I know, there's like 20 golf videos popping up in my YouTube feed. And I don't want that. Well, like we had this thing where like, I, I you know, I lived in England and I, I care about British things. And I read some stuff about the king because, you know, the queen died and there's a new king and everything. And now all of a sudden I'm getting blasted in my news feed with Megan and Harry stuff because he wrote that book. And I could care less about Harry and Megan in the book. But, you know, I'm getting blasted with it and everything. And, and, you know, the headlines, it's pretty clear, like, in his book, he talked about, you know, he talked about his first time uh, having sex. And so, uh, you know, 
it's not unreasonable to think that in, in a far less like where there's less eyes on you, right? Like Harry grew up in the spotlight with the media, but if you're the prince, but there's far less eyes on you that you could sneak off and do some stuff and, and not have an issue with that. But here's one of the few women, maybe that's why he's so just bent out of shape about this. Here's one of the few women in the kingdom he can't have. It's, it's his half sister. And, and it's and the indication here that she's a virgin, that she doesn't fool around. So he, he's got to have her. I, I knew guys in high school who would like specifically try to date Christian girls, like devoutly Christian girls, because they couldn't have them. They weren't easy. And, and you kind of get that, that vibe that like everything about this is, is just, he, he has to like, he has to have her. And the whole system is broken. It's one thing to have a half sister or half brother because of, um, you know, remarriage because, you know, uh, you're, you're, let's say that your mom was married and her first husband died and she had a, uh, you know, a son from that first marriage and then you come along and you're half brothers, right? Um, but you live together in the same house, you've grown up together. It's as if you were, you know, it's as if you were uh, brothers and sisters and all that kind of stuff, right? That, that, that sort of thing is, is a, a natural thing. And, and, and even divorce, you know, God does such amazing redemptive works uh, in divorce. And I've had people come and say, Adam, you know, hey, uh, we want to get married, but we've both been divorced. Would we be sinning to get remarried? And, and I, I don't know that that's the case. Um, you know, I, I think that, uh, I think that, uh, in it's case by case, but generally speaking, um, most of the weddings I have done in the last several years have been people who were previously divorced and I do not believe that they are sinning by getting remarried. And so, so we have these things where there are blended families and they come together. And my mom, after my dad died, got remarried and they, they, uh, they had, a, uh, they got pregnant, the, um, um, uh, whatever, we, we never found out if it was to be a, a boy or a girl, but um, they, they, they had a miscarriage uh, after a few months. And so, um, okay, I, that, that was it. I didn't have any stepbrothers or stepsisters. But those things are, are one thing. But what we're talking about is polygamy and, and, and brokenness in an extreme way. And it's always going to lead to strife. It's always going to lead to pain. And Maybe you're just kind of set up to fail. I'm not excusing Ammon for anything he's about to do. Do not hear what I am not saying. I'm not excusing him at all. But he was dealt a bad hand. Everyone in this story is dealt a bad hand. You know, maybe we have a frustration and anger at our parents or our grandparents. We have a frustration and anger, not at any one person, but at a whole generation. We're so angry at the boomers. Okay, boomer. And you might be a boomer yourself saying, what do you mean? Are you angry? No, no, no. I'm talking about between generations. One generation's mad at the other and Gen X is mad at everybody, but also doesn't care because that's Gen X. What I'm saying is we sometimes don't have grace and charity to understand, hey, maybe my parents were just doing the best that they could. Maybe my grandparents were just doing the best that they could. Maybe their generation was just doing the best they could with the hand they were dealt. Just throwing that out there. Now, Ammon had an advisor named Jonadab, son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very shrewd man. And he asked Ammon, why do you, the king's son, look so haggard morning after morning? Won't you tell me? He's got this figured out. Like, there's no reason for you to be bummed out, Ammon. You have everything you'd want. And he said, I am in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. So Jonadab says, go to bed and pretend to be ill. 
And whenever your father comes to see you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight so that I may watch her and then eat it from her hand. Now, that sounds creepy to me, but apparently it didn't raise any flags for anyone else. So I'm going to work under the assumption that it wasn't creepy in their day, that there was something about that that was normal and go from there. So Ammon lay down and pretend to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Ammon said to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and make some special bread in my sight so I may eat it from her hand. And David sent word to Tamar in the palace, go to the house of your brother Ammon and prepare some food for him. So Tamar went to the house of her brother Ammon, who was laying down, and she took some dough and kneaded it and made bread in his sight and baked it. And then she took the pan and served him the bread, but he refused to eat. Send everyone out of here, Ammon said. So everyone left him. Then Ammon said to Tamar, bring the food here into my bedroom so that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the bread that she prepared and brought it into her brother Ammon in his bedroom. And when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, come to bed with me, my sister. No, my brother, she said to him, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. Now that's interesting. She, I don't think she's literally saying I'd like that. I think she's saying what she needs to say to get out. But understand that she's not saying something that's unbelievable. It, it, in those days, you could have probably gotten away with marrying your half-sister. And she's, so she's saying something that like makes sense, even though I don't think she's trying to like literally propose to him. I think she's saying what she's got to do to get out of there. But he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than her, he raped her. Then Ammon hated her with intense hate. In fact, he hated her more than he loved her. And Ammon said to her, get up and get out. No, she said to him, sending me away would be a greater wrong than you have already done to me. Now, again, this isn't how right or it's not how it should be. This is how it was. So she knows that if he doesn't marry her, that there are social stigmas and, and things that come to bear. So she's just trying to do the best for herself that she can. She is the victim. This is a tragic story. And she says, if you send me away, it would be a greater disgrace. But he refused to listen to her and he called his personal servant and he said, get this woman out of my sight and bolt the door after her. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. She was wearing an ornate robe, for this was the kind of garment that the virgin daughters of the king wore. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the ornate robe she was wearing and put her hands on her head and went away weeping aloud as she went. This is tragic. And you can picture the story. He bolts the door on her. She's left in the street after just being raped. And she does... The, the ceremony of grief and mourning, and she w walks home in, in weeping and tears. One of the worst nights of my life, and, and I always preface this by saying that this was bad for me, but nowhere near as bad as it was for this woman. Um, but one of the worst nights of my life was, was coming upon a woman literally minutes after she'd been raped. And I'm thankful that I was able to be there and get her to a place of safety. Um, and... Uh, to be able to be a help to her. And I, I did actually get to talk to her a, a week or two later. Um, and, and you know, she came and, and, and thanked me. And I, I was grateful that she was okay and she was getting counseling. And I want to say this. 
One in three women in America have been sexually abused, and that statistic is no different in the church. One in six men have been sexually abused, and that number is considered dramatically underreported because men are far less likely to report sexual abuse than women are. If that is you, you need to know that it was not your fault. You need to know that it wasn't your fault. And you need to have freedom because the church has had such a weird thing towards psychology and psychiatrists and counseling. You need to know that it's okay to get help and to get counseling and to have work towards healing. It's okay. It's okay to be not okay for a while and be honest about that. That is so important for people to know. And it's not just important for victims to know, but it's important for those of us who haven't been victims, but we can be the the strong ones for them and stand up and say, it's okay to get help, to stand up against those who who preach against mental health and who say you just have to like shove it into some deep place and just, you know, kind of suffer through this life or you just have to grit and bear it. No, you, it's okay to get help. It's okay to not be okay. And what happened here was wrong and it was, it was evil. And there have been too many stories of powerful people covering up for young men like Ammon. Too many stories within the church where people have covered up for them. That should not be the case. Her brother Absalom said to her, has that Ammon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. He's not giving her good advice. But again, I'm trying to like think the best, like he's just doing the best he could given where he grew up. And Tamar lived in her brother's house, a desolate woman. She has a tragic story. There's, there's not a good thing that comes from this. Absalom takes her in, takes care of her. He, I think he's trying to do the best. He, he doesn't know any better. And you're not going to hear me a lot, say a lot of good things about Absalom, but this is one of them. Now, when David heard all of this, he was furious. And Absalom never said a word to Ammon, either good or bad. He hated Ammon because he disgraced his, sister's, his sister Tamar. What's going on here? David hears about this. He's furious. He doesn't do anything. There's no consequences for Ammon. Absalom doesn't deal with this in a healthy way. He doesn't go to his father and demand justice. He doesn't go directly to Ammon. He just shuts down. Nothing is healthy here. David's unhealthy. Absalom's unhealthy. Ammon's unhealthy. Tamar is brought to a place of unhealth because she's the victim. Nothing is healthy here. Two years later, when Absalom's sheep shearers were at Baal Hazor near the border of Ephraim, he invited the king's sons to come there. And he went to the king and said, your servant has had shearers come. Will the king and his attendants please join me? No, my son, the king replied, all of us should not go. We would only be a burden to you. Although Absalom urged him, he refused, but gave him his blessing. Absalom said, please let my brother Ammon come to us. The king asked him, why should, you go, why should he go to you? But Ammon urged him. But Absalom urged him, and he said, and he sent with him Ammon and the rest of the king's sons. So basically, Absalom's been waiting in the weeds. He decided, I'm going to kill him, but I need to wait and bide my time. And he hasn't said a thing to his brother so that nobody's going to go around like all Absalom does every day is rage that he's going to kill his brother Ammon. Now, maybe David thinks enough time has passed. Enough time has never passed, by the way. But maybe he thinks this. So all the king's sons are there, and Absalom ordered his men, Listen, 
When Ammon is in high spirits from drinking wine, and I say to you, strike Ammon down, then kill him. Don't be afraid. Haven't I given you this order? Be strong and brave. And Absalom's men did to Ammon what Absalom had ordered, and the king's sons got up and mounted their mules and fled. So Absalom is, is drunk, or sorry, Ammon is drunk because Absalom got him drunk, and then he tells his servants to kill him. And all the other sons, thinking that they're going to get off too, flee. Because in ancient times, in monarchies, right, if one son starts killing the other sons, that's an indication that that son is trying to cut out any competition for the throne. And there isn't a clear line like whose son, which one of the sons from which wife is the heir apparent. <clears throat> so they all flee. Verse 30. While they were on their way, the report came to David, Absalom has struck down all the king's sons, not one of them is left. So there's, you know, fog of war, misinformation. The king stood up and tore his clothes and lay down on the ground, and his attendants stood by them with their torn clothes. But Jonadab, son of Shimei, David's brother, said, my Lord should not think that they killed all the princes. Only Ammon is dead. Remember, he's shrewd. He says, this, is why Abs this has been Absalom's expressed intention ever since the day that Ammon raped his sister Tamar. My Lord the king should not be concerned about the report that all the king's sons are dead. Only Ammon is dead. Meanwhile, Absalom fled. So, so Jonadab's being shrewd, and he's processing the information. He's saying, hey, King David, it's unlikely that this report is true. It is far more likely that only one of your sons is dead. And so he is speaking to him in a kind of a matter-of-fact way. He's trying to encourage him. The man, uh, now the man standing watch looked up and saw many people on the road, rest of him, uh, coming down the hill. The watchman went and told the king, I see men in the direction of Hornam on the side of the hill. Jonadab said to the king, see the king's sons have come. It has happened just as your servant has said. As he finished speaking, the king's sons came in, wailing loudly, and the king too and all his attendants wept bitterly. Absalom fled and went to Talmai, son of Ahimud, the king of Geshur. But David mourned many days for his son. After Absalom fled and went to Geshur, uh, he stayed there three years. Now David longed to go to Absalom, for he was consoled concerning Ammon's death. Again, more brokenness. After a while, David this is kind of the, the peace that David comes to. He's, he mourns his son Ammon, but he also kind of goes, you know what? I get why Absalom did that. Uh, maybe it was the right thing. I didn't punish Ammon for, for what he did to his sister. Um, you know, we can maybe move on. And so he wants to go see his son. And I can uh, look at the, the, the clock here and know that we're not going to get that far. So I'll say this. Brokenness leads to more brokenness, leads to more brokenness. Your family has, you know, history of substance abuse, a family, a history of divorce or brokenness, and it just kind of repeats in cycles. The good news is that Jesus breaks cycles, that Jesus breaks cycles. Sin, death, sin, death, destruction, brokenness. Jesus changes lives. You know, the cycles of all of this stuff that David's kind of kicking off here are going to be just part and parcel of the story of his family through first and second Kings, first, second Chronicles. That doesn't have to be that way. That, that your family history does not define where you go as you surrender your life to Jesus. Does the healing happen all at once? No, it does not. Um, I, I look back and say, you know, both my mom and my mother-in-law are converts. They, they became Christians from unchurched backgrounds. 
Both of them grew up in horribly uh, abusive and dysfunctional situations. And they broke a cycle as they surrendered their lives to Jesus. And I had it better than they did. And my kids have it better than I did. And so on and so on and so on. As each generation continues to surrender themselves to God, those cycles are broken. One of my goals personally, just a personal goal, is that my kids will be the first generation on my wife's side of the family to see a male figure not take off and leave because that was the dysfunction in the story of my wife's side of the family. Those are things that we can be part of as we surrender ourselves to God, helping to break the cycles of sin and dysfunction. You know, unfortunately, David and his family didn't do that. They didn't surrender themselves to God in this area, and it did not end. But one of David's descendants, Jesus, made a way for us to have victory over sin and death. And I rejoice in that. I want to thank you for joining us for another episode of the 20-Minute Bible Study. I know this is a hard, hard subject matter. And if you needed to skip it, I totally understood, although you'd probably be done by the end of this point. New episodes are released on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you have any questions, comments, criticisms about anything I said, my email is adam at faithonhill.com. Always happy to hear from you. We'll see you again next time for another episode of the 20-Minute Bible Study.